the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing, washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. At your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came, and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean, and immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged, he charged him to tell no one but to go and show himself to the priest and to make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, infirmities rather. but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Verse 17 On one of these days, he was teaching. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some of the men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, and they let him down in his bed, threw the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call the righteous. I have not come to call the righteous, rather, but sinners to repentance. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. You know, in our passage this morning, 
Jesus calls his first disciples to follow him. And the disciples who follow him embark on a lifelong journey, a life-altering journey of transformation. Luke clearly makes this point when he brackets this entire passage with two stories of calling. In verse 11, they left everything and followed him. In verse 28, leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a person, he bids him to come and die. This is exactly what happens for the disciples of Jesus. And I don't mean just the 12 that we read about in the story. I mean for all who surrender their lives to Jesus. The call to follow Jesus is the bid to come and die. And so this morning, I want us to see when Jesus calls us to follow him, He calls us as disciples. He calls us to a transformational way of life, and he wants us to invite others along on the journey. This is what Jesus calls us to, a transformational way of life, and then he wants us to invite others along on the journey. And so in the first scene this morning, here's what we see. We see Jesus calling the disciples from catching fish to now catching men. And that's in the first story there in verses 1 through 11. While Jesus was preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, that's what he was doing as people were sitting there listening. The crowd grew and grew until they were pressing in around him. And so what does Jesus do? He commandeers a boat. He uses kind of the natural acoustics there at the seaside, the the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Gennesaret. And he he uses kind of the, there's the ridges uh, back behind the, the seashore. And if even today, if you kind of get out in a boat in those certain areas, you can speak plainly and people will hear you. It's kind of like a natural amphitheater. And so Jesus kind of exposes this. And he gets in a boat and just pushes out a little bit. And Peter takes him out just a little bit from the seashore, just a few feet maybe a few yards, and he begins sitting down and teaching them. But this really isn't the point of Luke's telling this story. The point is Simon and his crew had been fishing all night long, right? And if you've been fishing, I like to fish, and it's fun to go out and to fish, and we'll fish all day sometimes, and, and, um, and it, you know, it can, it can get tiresome, but it's so fun to go out and fish. And, but for Simon and the crew, it was, This was their work. This was their vocation. They had been fishing all night long. They hadn't caught a thing. They were physically exhausted from a long night. And, you know, when you've fished all day or fished all night and you haven't caught anything, you you reach a point when you say, okay, it's been a tough day or it's been a tough night on the water. Let's go in. Let's rest. We'll, We'll come back tomorrow. Now, I don't know this personally. I just know that people who have gone out fishing and they haven't caught anything, that's what they've told me. They've told me that they get worn out from... Well, anyway, so Jesus tells Simon, look, Simon, put out into the deep, drop the nets, and you're going to catch fish. But, you know, Peter's likely thinking, all right, look, Jesus, I know you healed my mother-in-law right back in chapter 4, and I know you healed all those people who came to you at Capernaum that night, and, but, but listen, this is my turf. Like, this is where I, I know the waters, I know fishing, you don't know this. I know this, right? I mean, that's the sentiment that, that he's, he's telling Jesus. But then he says, well, but at your word, I'll, I'll let down the nets, right? And you can imagine these fishermen, they do this. Who is this rabbi, this teacher telling us to go back out and drop the nets into the water? 
But what do they do? They go out and they drop the nets in the water. And to Peter and the crew's amazement, they caught so many fish that the nets began to break. They had to call out for the other boat, hey, come over here and help us. And so the other boat gets there. They feel both the boats and the boats are sinking. Now, these boats are probably about 27 feet. They're not just these small little, uh, you know, John boats that we might think of. They're, they're, they're pretty large sized boats. And the boats start to sink and they can barely get it back to land before the boats sink. And so as they, they get back to land, Peter, just right there, he kneels, right when he recognizes it. He kneels at Jesus, he kneels down before Jesus, right at his knees, and he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Peter's declaration really gets to the heart of the story. His confession and his recognition of his sinfulness is also meant to be part of our story. You see, in that moment, Peter recognized that Jesus' authority extends to all of creation. He's not just powerful over sickness and demons as he's already seen in Capernaum that night, but now he sees that he is powerful over the fish of the sea. And for Peter, he interprets that. If he's powerful over the fish of the sea, then he is powerful over my life. Translation, he's powerful over our lives as well. He's powerful over our children. He's powerful over our marriages. He's powerful over our homes. He's powerful over our vocations. You name it, and Jesus has authority over it. That's one of the points that Luke's making. He has authority, and Peter recognizes this, and he says, I shouldn't be in your presence. I mean, it's like a kickback to Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah is there in the temple and he has a vision of the glory of the Lord filling the temple. And he says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm lost. I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. In other words, I, don't, I, I, can't, I shouldn't be here. This is Peter's recognition before Jesus. The point of the story is this. Jesus is authoritative and powerful presence awakens us to our sinful condition. Peter's awakened to his condition before the Lord of glory. And look, this isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a good news kind of thing because when we recognize the authority of Jesus over our lives, we can't help but confess that we are sinners and that we're unworthy. That's part of what the text is teaching us. And this is the first step in submitting to God's power and authority over our lives. Notice the grace of the moment. Jesus tells Peter in verse 10, don't be afraid, Peter. From now on, you'll be catching men. The word for catching literally means catching alive. And the idea is, Peter, now you'll be catching people to life. That's what Jesus is telling Peter. You're going to join me in this mission, and now you're going to catch men to life. And the grace of the moment is that Jesus calls a sinner one who says, I'm not worthy to be in your presence, to join him in his mission of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God to the world. Isn't that good news? <laughs> Isn't that good news for you and me? That Jesus would call us sinners to take part in his mission of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God to the world? So this passage says, that James and John, sons of Zebedee, along with Peter, they left everything and followed him. So Christian, don't miss the importance of the miracle. Jesus is authoritative over all things, and he graciously comes to us. He awakens us to our sinful ways. 
And he invites us to join him in his kingdom mission. He calls Peter and the others to come and help him catch people so that the good news could go out wider and wider. So get this, there are no sideline participants in the kingdom of God. We're all, we're all fishing, right? We all should have a line in the water in the sense. I tell the kids whenever we go fishing, hey, what, what's the greatest way to not catch any fish? Well, it's to not have your line in the water, right? I mean, if you're out there, at least throw your line in the water. I'm not trying to reduce the kingdom of God and the work we do to throw in a line in the water, but look, this is part of what we ought to be doing. We ought to be engaging in God's kingdom work. Jesus said, I've called you to catch men. No longer to catch fish, but to catch men. The passage isn't teaching that everyone who comes to faith in Jesus has to leave their current vocation and now search out a a new kingdom-minded vocation. The point is that when Jesus calls us, he demands everything. And as kingdom citizens, we're part of God's kingdom work in the world from from our interaction with our neighbors and co-workers to the hobbies that we enjoy, from the discipleship of our children to serving our spouse, from our financial choices to our generosity. In all these ways, we are kingdom citizens and part of God's kingdom work. And so living under the authority of Christ as kingdom citizens energizes our lives with a different kind of purpose. Energizes our lives with a kingdom purpose. So how does the kingdom, how does God's kingdom purpose intersect our daily lives? Think about your relationships, perhaps with your spouse or with your coworkers or with your neighbors or family, children, our friends, what might God be using you to do in the lives of others? What might God be teaching you through the presence of others in your life and vice versa, through teaching others through the presence of you in their life? When it says he left everything and followed him, Luke is telling us the cost of discipleship is high. Jesus calls us to pursue him above all other things. What are those things which keep us from living with kingdom purpose? What are those things which keep us from catching people for Jesus? In the second scene, we, we see a begging leper get transformed. He's transformed from being unclean to being clean in verses 12 through 16. You know, we, we know much more about leprosy today than, than they did in, in New Testament times. Leprosy, now called Hansen's disease, is still an active disease in many parts of the world. In fact, there's about 150 cases which show up each year in the U.S. I thought about showing a picture of leprosy just so we could have it in our minds. But you can go and you can research it yourself. You can Google it uh, later, preferably. But, but here's what happens. He, whenever a person gets leprosy, they start getting a skin disease that gets infected and it, maybe it gets pussy. Uh, and then it deadens the nerves in that part of the body, and, and it spreads throughout the body. And what ends up, uh, what, what ends up being the, the deforming part of the disease oftentimes is that when people were asleep, um, animals would come and gnaw on parts of their body. I, mean, I know it's gross, but, uh, but the, there was a, it was a greatly deforming disease, and people thought that it was... Um, contagious through physical touch and so because of that people were cast out of the city 
They were treated as outcasts. Uh, They weren't allowed to live in the general population. But not only was it physically painful, it was also emotionally and psychologically painful for people. Families were torn apart. A father unable to hug and touch his children, unable to be there with his children, a husband unable to, to be in the presence of his wife, and vice versa, a wife unable to be in the presence of her husband or a mother unable to love and hug and watch her children grow up. You can imagine the difficulty of such a disease. Families would end up leaving food out for their loved one uh, in a place outside of the city, and they could only watch from a distance as their loved one would come and get the food. They were the outcasts of society. And so when a leper came in range of the normal population, they would cry out, unclean, unclean. Luke, I mean, uh, Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 and 46, tell us a little bit about the leper's condition. The, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. You get the picture? Uh, sick, deformed body, um, unkept. He shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He he is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. So, literally, they were untouchables. They were viewed, in fact, by the community as walking parables of sin. People actually thought that the leper's outward condition was a visible sign of their inward spiritual corruption. They were unable to worship. They were unclean and unworthy of appearing before God in his temple. And so the leper was truly hopeless. Now the effect of this man's leprosy is clearly seen in the way that he approaches Jesus in verse 12. In fact, Dr. Luke, right? Doctor, remember Luke was a doctor. He tells us that he was full of leprosy. This man was full of, meaning he had had it for quite some time and it spread throughout his entire body. And so he came and he fell on his face before Jesus and he begged Jesus to make him clean. He says, Lord, if you are willing, you can heal me. That's not what he said. He said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He was aware of his unworthiness. If you think I'm pulling this point out of thin air, notice what Jesus says in verses 31 and 32 at the end of the text that we're reading this morning. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. You see, he knew he was unclean, he knew he was hopeless, and he knew that he was in need of healing. And so for the leper, coming and asking for Jesus to make him clean was much bigger than just healing him. Making him clean was making him acceptable to God. And so he fell to the ground in humble submission and he begged Jesus to make him clean. And the height of the story is when Jesus reached out and touched the unclean leper. He hadn't been touched by anyone in years. The disease had laid waste to his body. People feared touching him, but in Jesus' touch, we see the hope of redemption and the hope of restoration. And in Jesus' touch, we even see a parable of the incarnation. God the Son became man. He identified with our humanity in order to redeem us and to reconcile us to be with God. Jesus said, I will be clean and touched him. And immediately the leprosy left him. The story of the leper and his healing offers us a living illustration of Jesus' work of cleansing us 
and cleansing our lives. Sin has invaded our lives from top to bottom, and it's made us unclean before God. You might say the stench of our sin before God is even more putrid than the stench of the leopard's, of the leper's flesh before people. But listen, the lie of sin is twofold. Either we refuse to admit our sin, saying there's nothing really wrong with us, or we don't believe that our sin is bad enough to warrant the help of someone else, and we have this mindset, I can do it myself. So the leper has neither of these conclusions about himself. Years of announcing his uncleanness had become the mantra of his life. He walked around thinking, I am unclean, I am unclean. In fact, for so long he had been unclean and among the dregs of society that he knew he was without hope. You know, at this point, I kind of feel the temptation to back off and maybe to ease the truth. But when we do that, it really doesn't benefit anyone. I I don't want us to feel like we're beat up by the truth of Scripture. I know that there's joy in walking with Christ. I I enjoy His presence, and I enjoy His Spirit-filled fellowship. But listen, we can't skip the humbling of ourselves and the brokenness of spirit that Scripture repetitively calls us to. Right? This is Jesus in the, the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 continually calling us to humble ourselves, to, to be lowly before him, and then Christ will exalt us. We see it in the New Testament in James, James chapter 4, after calling the Christians of the church adulterous people because they were having friendship with the world, he goes on to say to them, submit yourselves into God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sitters, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Mind you, he's talking to the church, to Christians. And then he goes on to say, listen to this, be wretched and mourn and weep. Telling believers to do this. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. That doesn't sound like the happy-go-lucky Christianity that's often proclaimed today. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and then he will exalt you. I'm saying all of this because so many today want a gospel that makes us feel good about self. So many want sermons that pet our egos. So many want worship services that function like pep rallies to get us psyched up for the game of life Monday through Saturday. Right? Just, just give me five things to do so that I can work on being a better Christian this week. I need to better myself. But herein lies the problem. We think there's an alternative way to earn God's favor. We think there's some alternative way to earn our cleansing. And so we ask questions like, what must we do to live a blessed life? But by blessed life, we don't really mean the kind of thing that Scripture calls us to see. What we really mean are superficial things. Things like, my kids won't get terminally ill, right? Things like, uh, I feel good about myself. Things will go my way. People will treat me well. That my car won't run out of gas or I'll have money in the bank to buy the things that I want, that I can enjoy my hobbies or, or that people will like me. And on and on and on, the empty shell of this religious game goes on. Just trying to feel better and better and better about ourselves. And it's a lie. That is not 
what the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is about. The good news of the gospel is glorious when we come to the end of ourselves and we humbly bow before the only one who can cleanse us. And that's what the leper knew. There was only one who could cleanse him. And church, I submit to you that we need to recover a sense of God's glory and his transcendence and his holiness. This text is teaching us, this passage, God's word, is teaching us that Jesus has authority over the ravages of leprosy and over the ravages of sin. And just as Jesus made the leper clean, so he makes me and so he makes you clean. You see, the leper's healing was a declaration that the messianic kingdom had arrived. That's why he tells him, go and show yourself to the priest and make the offerings of cleansing like Leviticus, like Moses commanded you. So here's a question as we, as we come face to face with this passage this morning, this truth of Scripture. How do we approach Christ? Do we approach him with a deep awareness of our sin? Do we humble ourselves before him? I'm not saying for us to live some defeated, downcast, and downtrodden life. That's not the point of it at all. When we humble ourselves, listen, church, Jesus exalts us. There is joy in walking in fellowship with Christ and living submitted lives to Jesus' authority. And it's not this shell of a game that, that religion often propagates. How will we approach Christ? I want to notice one other other thing in verse 16 before we move on to the next scene. Jesus draws away to pray. He finds a desolate place to pray, right? You know what he's doing? He's going to his source of strength. He's communing with the Father. And if we kind of make this connection from Jesus praying and ministering in our own and and apply it to our own lives so that when, when we pray, we recognize that we're being strengthened to minister, that we're tuning our hearts to the will of God, tuning our wills submissively to the will of God, declaring your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are part of that mission. And so just as Jesus was empowered to reach out and touch the untouchable, so when we join Jesus in his kingdom mission and kingdom work, we too are called to touch the lives of the untouchable, right? I submit to you that you need to steal away to desolate places and pray. You need to find time to be alone, to have your your spirit renewed. I think this is why Jesus upholds the idea of Sabbath rest. In the next scene, scene three, Jesus speaks and brings healing. But there's faith and forgiveness that comes in the midst of this story. So think about what's happening in the context of the ancient world or in the context of Jesus' day. Word of this powerful young rabbi has spread. In fact, religious leaders have have gathered to observe and examine Jesus in action. They'd come from all over. They'd come from every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. 
Some of them were skeptical, not sure what to make of Jesus at first, eager to find something wrong with him. Others were just uncertain. They wanted to hear Jesus, hear his teaching and his preaching. And as it happened, they were sitting in the audience, and as Jesus was teaching, they probably noticed some dirt falling from the ceiling on them, and so maybe they brushed it off. But eventually, there was this body being lowered down through the ceiling right between the religious teachers and Jesus. And as this man is lowered down, Jesus looks up and he sees these friends lowering down their friend. When he looks up and sees them in verse 20, he sees their faith and he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, the obvious expectation as we're reading through the story here is that Jesus would say what? You're healed. Get up and walk. But that's not what he does. And the religious leaders take issue with Jesus' words. Your sins are forgiven? Inwardly, they cry out, this is blasphemy. But Jesus, with divine insight, he, he calmly responds, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? But so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Look at verse 25. Immediately, or verse 24, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And then immediately he rose up before them. He picked up what he had been lying on and he went home glorifying God. <laughs> I love what Spurgeon said at this point about this passage. He said, I think I see him. He sets one foot down to God's glory and then he sets the other one down to the same note and he walks to God's glory and he carries his bed to God's glory and he moves his whole body to the glory of God. He speaks and he shouts and he sings and he leaps to the glory of God. This man has had his sins forgiven. Yeah, it's amazing that he was healed, that his paralysis is gone. But here's what the miracle reveals. The the miracle reveals that Jesus has authority. He has all authority to forgive sins. And the good news of the kingdom Jesus is proclaiming is that he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. This is amazing. For every one of us, any who come to God through him, Jesus is able to save. We can't be snatched out of his hand. He can't lose us. He keeps us secure. Not only do we see the unambiguous authority of Jesus to forgive sins, we we also recognize a challenge to our own participation in God's kingdom work. Listen. When we believe that Jesus is the the only way to wholeness and life, then we'll go to great lengths to bring our friends to the only one who can bring healing. We see the love of friends. They bring their friend to Jesus. They fight through the crowd. We see conviction. They believe that Jesus is the only one who can heal their friend. We see great faith. They couldn't get him through the crowd on the, on the ground, so they take a risk. They, they climb up the stairs, and they get on the roof, and they dig through the roof, and then they lower him through the roof. There's no way they would have risked such an outrageous act in front of so many people had they not believed. Their persistence to get their friend to Jesus was unrelenting. So here's the question. 
will you be the faithful friend who brings your friends to Jesus for healing, for forgiveness? Will you be the faithful and unrelenting parent who is persistent in bringing your children to Jesus? Will you be the faithful and persistent spouse who prays for your unbelieving spouse, unbelieving coworker, unbelieving neighbor? Will you be the faithful and persistent spouse who brings your loved one before the throne of God and serves your loved one? You know, sometimes we come to Jesus thinking we need one thing, but Jesus always has a way of diagnosing our true needs, doesn't he? He always knows. Sometimes we don't want to come to Jesus because we know what he's going to ask us to lay down. And so we try and we try and we stumble and we we try to make it on our own until we ultimately realize we just can't. The paralytic and his friends thought his greatest need was physical healing. But Jesus addresses every person's greatest need through the miracle. His greatest need was spiritual salvation, forgiveness of his sin. Listen, we could pose this scenario to any person on the street. A paralytic is brought to Jesus, the Son of God who has all authority. What do you think is the paralytic's greatest need that Jesus can meet? Healing. That's what we would all say, healing. But you know what's amazing to me about this passage? Is Jesus comes and he gives the man forgiveness. No one in the crowd comes up to Jesus after and says, will you forgive my sins too? Isn't that amazing? They were all astonished. But no one comes up and says, can you forgive my sins too? I mean, if a paralyzed man, if his greatest need wasn't physical healing, but spiritual forgiveness, is there any question about my and about your greatest need? Is there any question about our greatest need? spiritual forgiveness so from the crowd we might take away a couple of things one being in awe of God is not the same as knowing God they were all in awe of God but being in awe of God is not the same as knowing God and secondly acknowledging and worshiping God is not the same as worshiping God in the way that he requires but when we come to God through Christ the good news is that we're accepted We're cleansed, we're forgiven, and we're embraced. This is the good news of the gospel. Finally, in scene four, we see Jesus calling all sinners, calling all sinners. Levi was a tax collector. He was hated. He was a scum of society. He was especially hated by his own people, the Jews, because he was seen as a traitor. He was dishonest. He was untrustworthy. He was a licensed extortionist, able to charge people whatever they wanted for their own gain. I was thinking about how this might apply in our our current day. It would be as if an IRS agent had a authoritative, like a police vehicle, okay? And at will, the IRS agent could pull anybody over and say, hmm, you got a new car, I see. When did you get this new car? Uh, A couple days ago. Oh, and uh, there's a tax that you're going to have to pay for. Well, no, no, I paid taxes when I bought it. No, this is a new tax, this is a highway and road tax, and you're going to have to, pay, have to pay 15% of the cost of the vehicle, right? I mean, the cost of today's cars, that's a pretty significant amount of money, right? I mean, you're talking $8,000, 9000 
This is, in essence, what any tax collector could do in, in Jesus' day. And so it gives you an idea as to why tax collectors were so hated. The healing of the paralytic showed us that Jesus sees beyond the physical deformities of our body. He sees into our lives. He sees our spiritual condition. And, and Levi himself is representative of, of moral and ethical deformity. And Jesus says to him in, verses, in verse 27, he comes and he just says, follow me. And then it says next, what does he do? He leaves everything and he follows him. Well, it's likely Jesus had other conversations that Levi had listened to the gospel, had heard Jesus preach. But that's not the point that Luke is making. Luke is just saying that when Jesus said, follow me, Levi left everything and followed him. There's a great transformation that happened in Levi's life. In fact, not only did he leave everything, he threw a party. He threw Jesus a party. He wants all of his sinner tax collector friends to come and to meet Jesus because he's convinced that Jesus is the one who can change everything. You see, when we surrender to Jesus' authority, he gives us a purpose. He does. He gives us purpose. Levi has found a new purpose in his life. His emptiness has been filled. The Pharisees grumble. They think that holiness requires separation from sinners, but Jesus goes and he dines with sinners. It's interesting, isn't it? Notice verses 31 and 32. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I think verses 31 and 32 issue a fitting challenge to the church how do we reach the lost who don't know Jesus? We can't wait for them to come to us. We have to go and engage people. We have to go and engage people who don't know Jesus and invite them into our lives, build relationships, share a meal, and then bring them to Jesus. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to a transformational way of life and he wants, to, he wants us to invite others along on the journey. But like Peter, we need to confess our sin and our unworthiness as we come to Jesus. And like the leper, we need to cry out to God for cleansing. And like the paralytic, we need to put our faith in the Lord. And like Levi, we need to repent and follow with a new purpose. This is what Jesus calls us to. This is what it means to be called, cleansed, and commissioned with a purpose. I pray the Lord will challenge each of our hearts this morning with this truth of his word and change us, empower us, equip us to live for him. Perhaps this morning you've recognized that you don't truly have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and I want you to know in no uncertain terms that Jesus desires you submit your life to him, that you live for him, that you express your repentance over your sin and seek his forgiveness, and that you surrender your life to Jesus. If you've not done that this morning, I'd love to speak with you about it after the service. One of our elders will be over here on the side of the sanctuary by the cross to meet with you and speak with you or you can find me after the service and I would love to speak with you about what it means to surrender your life and trust Jesus as your savior would you join me in prayer our father in heaven we thank you for the hope and the truth of your word 
We pray now, Lord, that you would strengthen us as your people to live according to your mission, to live with a purpose, to embrace the purpose that you've called us to. Lord, we we humbly confess that we are nothing without you, but we want to walk in the spirit-filled fellowship that that you bring and that you give. And so strengthen us, Lord. Fill us with your hope, the hope of Christ. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?